From KUAR News in Little Rock, this is our Week in Review podcast. Coming up, Arkansas lawmakers hold a special session to approve changes to health care and talk about impeaching a judge for protesting the death penalty. Record flooding in northern Arkansas prompts a big response to save lives and property. We'll talk with a reporter there who has seen the damage firsthand. And reaction to news that disgraced former evangelist Tony Alamo, who had a compound in Arkansas, has died. I was raised not to celebrate the death of another human, but um, I've got to say that um, in this case, we're probably all better off with him gone. We'll also play excerpts from an interview former KUAR News and Program Director Ron Breeding recorded with Alamo in 1982. For the week ending Friday, May 5th, 2017, this is KUAR's Week in Review podcast. I'm Michael Heplin. And I'm Chris Hickey. That's just ahead. Spring flooding in Arkansas is certainly not unusual, but this week we've seen record flooding in northeast Arkansas. About the northern half of Arkansas was inundated with very heavy rain this past weekend. Up to a foot of rain fell in some parts of this region of the country, and the Black River in particular has been rising to record levels. On Tuesday, Governor Asa Hutchinson flew over flooding that has inundated the town of Pocahontas and spoke with reporters about that. Uh, We have over 500 evacuations that have been uh, completed uh, by the personnel deployed. Uh, Today they have identified nine levee breaches uh, in Randolph County alone. Three of these breaches of the levees appear to be categorized as major. And this, of course, impacts uh, the flooding in Lawrence County, which we're watching uh, very carefully. And the governor on Wednesday dispatched additional National Guardsmen to the area, as well as uh, state police, to assist carrying out water rescues or whatever uh, is needed there. But uh, at the scene was Jonathan Reeves with Jonesboro Station KASU, our partner up there. Jonathan joins us now. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Michael. Hi, Chris. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So uh, you were out there, I guess, first visually describe the scene in Pocahontas. Uh, Water has uh, now submerged a lot of buildings there. It really has and has uh, devastated uh, at least 50 homes. As of Wednesday, there were over 37 water rescues that had to take place uh, there in Pocahontas. When you take a look at Pocahontas, the Black River uh, kind of divides the town. You have the eastern part of Pocahontas, which is the more lower-lying end of the city, and the western part of Pocahontas, which is built higher up. And uh, when you take a look at the lower end, uh, it just just really, really heartbreaking to see uh, water in homes and also water in businesses. Uh, the one thing that was good to see, though, was a community that was coming together, those on the west side, trying to help those on the east side uh, with businesses, uh, helping the business owners board up, because a lot of businesses in Pocahontas are down in that eastern part of the city. 
uh, talked to State Senator uh, Linda Collins-Smith from Pocahontas, and that's one of the things that she talked about specifically was uh, how just the camaraderie and how people can remember what happened in 2011. Back in 2011, the, the similar situation took place, and they felt like that maybe some people didn't take that, those warnings as seriously as uh, they they possibly could have. But here in 2017, with what uh, happened and what could have been, uh, people took it very, very seriously this time. Thankfully, no loss of life in Pocahontas, even though they've had to have over uh, 30 water rescues. But it still has been a devastating scene for this community. And Governor Asa Hutchinson had almost uh, immediately uh, after the uh, heavy rains over the weekend on Sunday issued a state disaster declaration, and he said he is uh, very confident a federal disaster declaration uh, will be coming from Washington. Pocahontas, uh, at this point, uh, it looks like the worst is over there, but we're now seeing uh, floodwaters spreading uh, elsewhere a little further south. Yeah, in Pocahontas, you have the Black River, yes, but you also have four other rivers that kind of flow into Pocahontas. And then all of that water will eventually makes its way towards the Mississippi. Well, with the over foot of flooding, a foot of rain that's been contributing to the flooding and all of that, the Mississippi River has been swelling. And so there's really no place for that water to go. So the water just keeps backing up and backing up. And so what we're seeing here is that even though the river is cresting uh, and has crested uh, much lower than what they originally were thinking that it was going to, it's still a problem because water is still uh, just kind of pooling and there's nowhere for it really to go. Uh, then the folks in Lawrence County, which is in the south, just south of Randolph County, they're seeing this black river water that's moving down. And so uh, the county judge there is has been telling people to evacuate. And then they're also watching a possibility of what may happen next week. Officials in Missouri may be opening up the Clearwater Lake. And if that takes place, more water could come down. And so uh, while uh, so it's kind of maybe a double punch possibly for those people in northeast Arkansas have already seen way too much rain. And Jonathan, I know that, you know, a lot of people have been evacuated from their homes. And you mentioned the 37 water rescues. Uh, where are these people housed now? I mean, I'm, I understand they're in shelters. And what's next for them in terms of rebuilding? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there are two shelters that are set up in uh, Pocahontas right now, and there's actually some outlying shelters as well. But uh, the first uh, answer to the first question, uh, the old Randolph County Nursing Home is one place where uh, people are being sheltered. Also, there's another uh, place. It's the Perigold Community Center where uh, some other people are being uh, I think they said only about 30 people could stay probably in one, and so uh, some others are staying there. Uh, those uh, around in Lawrence County, they can go to the Walnut Ridge Community Center uh, in nearby Walnut Ridge, and that's where some of those people have been going. By way of uh, assistance, uh, one of the things that uh, the mayor of Pocahontas, Kerry Story, he told uh, residents uh, that were there, it's going to be a while. You know, it's, it, these things by way of uh, disaster assistance do not take, uh, it, it's something that just takes a while to go through the process. It's not a quick process. So even though that Governor Hutchinson has already declared a state of emergency, which will definitely help, that helps with the National Guard troops. Of course, they were deployed uh, out of Jonesboro to, to help and many other uh, ways to be able to help. Uh, 
by way of anything federal, they may not meet with any federal officials for at least a month. And so uh, basically they're going to have to do what they can do uh, until waiting for federal assistance to come in. Uh, It could be next week, possibly, before uh, business owners can go in and be able to check out any kind of damage. And it could be that same time before uh, people can go back into their homes. So it's going to be, you know, uh, quite a while before any kind of measurable assistance can come in to those areas around Pocahontas. And I know that one of the the big issues that we've seen in Arkansas when it comes to flooding has been the ability of levees to to keep back floodwaters. And this was something that we saw back in, I think, 2015 when those floods uh, devastated those areas of southwest Arkansas along the Red River that you know, the, the, the levees themselves have not been uh, very well maintained, and there's this issue of governance. What are people saying about, you know, since there have been levee breaches, um, about maintaining these levees? Are they doing an adequate job, or should those things be reviewed? That's a, another great question. One of the things that Governor Hutchinson actually was was asked that particular question, and that's been something that uh, I asked the uh, mayor of Pocahontas and also asked Linda Collins-Smith, the state senator Linda Collins-Smith, and I'll play this response for, uh, for you about this, but she had an interesting thought process about our levies enough, and let me go ahead and play this for you. We're going to have to really see where we're at to assess that damage to see what we can do to hopefully minimize these situations in the future because water's going to come here. We have five rivers. When floods happen, when natural disasters happen, then what can we do if building levees are not the answer because you can't just hold water back? What could you do possibly to reroute water? So as you see, um, you know, some very good questions. You know, how do we safely reroute that water? How are we able to do that? Those are going to be some some very, very serious questions that people are going to be talking about because you're talking about uh, uh, what Mayor Story had said. This What happened in 2011 was only supposed to be about uh, maybe a 100-year flood. And here we are just a mere six years later, and we're having another one of these floods, and it could have actually been a lot worse had the original crest been 31 and a half feet, it wasn't. It only crested about 28.95. But still, you're talking about levees that can only hold about 28 feet of water. And then these there were nine breaches in the levees. So the question is, what's going to have to happen to prevent this from happening again? Is it something that the Army Corps of Engineers may have to dredge uh, the Black River more? Are we going to have to take a look at other uh, kinds of ways to address these issues? These are some questions where it's going to take local, state, and federal officials to come together to try and address what is going on and why these things are happening and how to prevent disasters like these from happening again. All right. Well, that's Jonathan Reeves. With our partner station, KASU in Jonesboro, who has been out there seeing the scene there in uh, Pocahontas. Well, Jonathan, uh, we'll look forward to uh, more updates and uh, find out how things go up there. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, Chris, back here in uh, Little Rock, we had the uh, special session of the legislature. On Monday, we had the uh, formal adjournment of the regular legislative session, just a formality to come back and make any final approvals needed to uh, bills, and uh, that took place relatively quickly. And uh, immediately, a special session began, primarily focused uh, on health care. 
And I'll start here with a cut from Governor Asa Hutchinson on Wednesday after this uh, session wrapped up, as he hoped within uh, three days, uh, real quick in and out for lawmakers. My goal was that we come in and we leave within three days. We've accomplished that purpose. But even with that time frame, the uh, members educated themselves. They thoughtfully debated it. Uh, they, if there are any weak spots, they found it. And uh, they worked through that legislative process very thoroughly. And I was delighted with the result that uh, we accomplished the authority that I needed to seek the waiver for Arkansas Works to strengthen its reform efforts in terms of work and responsibility and cost savings measures. And then we also uh, created the long-term reserve fund. And this uh, generated a significant amount of debate, but it's noteworthy that even though it took a two-thirds uh, vote to accomplish this, we were able to get that two-thirds vote to establish a long-term reserve fund. And it's the first time in the history of this state that I'm aware of uh, that we have a funded long-term reserve uh, in this state that should put us in better financial position and a better position as we're reviewed by the financial markets, industrial prospects, and bond raters as well. So, Chris, first on the uh, changes to the state's Arkansas Works program, the uh, Medicaid hybrid expansion yeah. program, as it's been called. The governor pretty much uh, got exactly uh, what he wanted here. Yeah, and this is something, you know, he had asked uh, or had kind of talked about for quite a while, uh, basically uh, removing a certain uh, population from the Arkansas Works program or hybrid Medicaid expansion private option, as it had been known in the past. This program, which uses a uh, majority of this funding from the federal government through Medicaid to pay for private health insurance plans for uh, low-income citizens here in the state. He wanted to take this uh, population who make between 100 and 138 percent of the federal poverty level, so somewhere around for an individual 12000 to $16,000 a year, and um, basically remove them from the program, whereas the, you know before they used to get... Uh, their, uh, their health insurance subsidized, their premiums paid for uh, by the government. Now they'll have to go onto the exchanges and shop for coverage there. Um, and, you know, the, the vote for this was pretty much along party lines. I think most Democrats voted against it, but most Republicans voted for it. Um, and there was some disagreement that among conservative legislators that it didn't go far enough in, in uh, walking back the program and its spending, which was uh, kind of the whole point. Uh, I think Governor Hutchinson had realized that the state was um, increasing its spending for Medicaid at, uh, in a, for, at a pretty high rate. And so um, this was one of his measures to uh, kind of maintain a level of sustainability while also dropping coverage for these people who will now have to buy their own health insurance. Yeah, about 60,000 people. And the governor was adamant that this can be done seamlessly, uh, transitioning these people over. Uh, was there much uh, debate? Did lawmakers, uh, uh, was that an issue? It wasn't very fully debated. It was moved, things were moving quite quickly. I think... Um, you know, I mentioned some conservative legislators had had argued that this didn't go 
quite as far as uh, it could have gone in terms of rolling back the program. I think Senator Brian King, a Republican, uh, had delivered a near 40-minute speech on the Senate floor and when the bill was initially um, initially came up, uh, arguing along those grounds, and he had, uh, you know, opposed the private option from the beginning when um, the state decided to take the Medicaid money and expand uh, Medicaid in the state. So, um, you know, not a lot from the other side of the, the I guess, the more left-leaning spectrum in terms of debate, but I think that's a reflection that a lot of the those Democratic legislators uh, viewed the passage of this bill is inevitable, yeah. no matter what their their opinion. And Senator King really was very uh, impassioned here. Why don't we play a, a cut from uh, his speech there on the Senate floor, just really trying to rally other members. This process at this point in time needs to be stopped, and there needs to be better and more proposals put in, and we may not all agree with them, but I have sit there and said, I was down there in the RSA speech, and I said, you know what, we need to wait until we have a better informed decision about voting on RSA. Now, you can argue whatever you want, stuff, but when you're sitting here in the financial trouble that we are in, you know what, we need to make better proposals, have real discussions on making changes that are fair to people, that don't treat one standard on this program for one and another one traditional Medicaid. So we need to stop this process and let's do something right. We should have waited on RSA to vote for it till the next revenue reports come out because now you're going to allow the governor to make the changes instead of us having discussion and input. But Senator King was pretty much uh, the only person out there uh, really making any major debate on this. Uh, but Chris, there were a couple of other measures uh, First, the uh, uh, the long-term reserve fund. Uh, the governor said that uh, this will greatly benefit Arkansas, put it on a much more financial stable footing, uh, diverts uh, just over $100 million in unused tobacco settlement money. Uh, this uh, also uh, easily passed. Yeah, and it comes as in the backdrop of, you know, just several months now of, of less than expected state revenue figures. And, you know, the governor has also uh, last week had to mention or had to announce that he was going to cut the state budget. So, you know, I think, um, you know, it was a reflection that, you know, the state had to have some kind of uh, reserve in the works uh, in, in case of some financial crisis or, you know, or something along those lines. But I guess the uh, one thing that uh, I don't know if it was a surprise for insiders, but it was argued this wasn't, well, it was clearly in response to uh, uh, Pulaski County Circuit Judge Wendell Griffin taking part in a very dramatic uh, death penalty demonstration outside of the governor's mansion just hours after rolling in uh, one of the challenges that could have blocked Arkansas's uh, lethal injections last month uh, after making this ruling at the request of drug companies who didn't want their product used for executions. Judge Griffin lied down on a gurney, uh, not actually a gurney, it was a cot, but kind of mimicking uh, an inmate being on a gurney. And uh, the images of that uh, really upset a lot of lawmakers. 
Yeah, and on Monday, Senator Trent Garner, Republican out of um, El Dorado, released a statement basically calling for the impeachment of Griffin, and I think his sentiment was uh, reflected by a lot of Republican legislators. So immediately after adjournment in the Arkansas House, the House was called to order for a caucus in which they had the ability to you know, make their own rules, not necessarily pass laws or anything, but um, it was a measure sponsored by Speaker Jeremy Gillum, Republican of also, who said he was crafting these rules on impeachment or on the impeachment process because in the state constitution, the kind of rules for impeachment or the procedure was never is never clearly stated or uh, you know spelled out in the constitution it's kind of up to the house to determine how it's being done and so here's a clip of gillum just kind of talking along those lines if an impeachment is imminent it will happen uh under this system that we've got now uh or it would happen with this. I mean, if it's, I'm, that's why I'm saying, just look at what's in front of you, decide whether or not these are the processes that you feel should be in place, and then vote yes. If you think that you were better off with the one person being able to make a motion, uh, it would, and then go down the road that would exist now with ambiguity and potential chaos, uh, vote no. Uh, to me, it's a simple choice. So Gillum's proposal, which was passed on a 73 to 13 vote, I believe, allows for a resolution to be filed if it has 34 co-sponsors in the House to begin the articles of impeachment. Uh, that could be referred to a committee, which could then you know, recommend that the full House take up this uh, impeachment vote. And that's the, basically the change, whereas before you, you kind of mentioned um, right now, essentially any member could raise a motion that, you know, I want to impeach somebody and could go on from there, uh, depending on, you know, how it's handled. It, it's nothing's clearly stated. So that's why he referred to the chaos. And, you know, obviously this drew a lot of debate, not because of the rules in the proposal itself, but of course the context, which is Judge Griffin and, you know, why we have to consider this now. I mean, that, that was one of the arguments by the opponents of this is that, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a targeted thing to um, explore the imminent impeachment of a judge who acted in a way that nobody, you know, on the other side of the death penalty argument really likes. And Here's um, Vivian Flowers, Democratic representative out of Pine Bluff. We know what this is really about, and I want to come up here and say, let's address that. If this is really about impeaching Judge Griffin, then let's be courageous as a body, let's be honest as a body, and say that that's what we're doing, and then address it appropriately. Not come down here and file a resolution the day before it's to be addressed without any opportunity for any of us to be a part of the discussion or process for what this is really supposed to do. 
So she was kind of referring to the kind of quickness with which this measure was filed. Now, Gillum said that there are no immediate plans to uh, impeach Judge Griffin. And nonetheless, uh, Judge Griffin, who's outspoken on a range of issues, uh, did uh, post something on his blog, which he regularly writes on, um, kind of criticizing the move by the General Assembly. And, you know, he basically defended his action as being one of free speech uh, guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, suggested this wouldn't make him someone who's not capable of impartially deciding a case based on the evidence and rule of law. Yeah, and and in fact, uh, you know, his currently under investigation for this uh, by the Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission, the Arkansas Supreme Court also removed all his death penalty cases and reassigned that one case in which he issued that order to another Pulaski County judge who um, basically took the same action as he did uh, later in the week, temporarily blocking all the executions, which was later overturned by the state Supreme Court. But here's a quote from Judge Griffin. Political office holders have the right to disagree with what others say and do. We have no right to use our offices to punish or threaten people for exercising their right to disagree with us. The word we use whenever that happens isn't loyalty. It isn't patriotism. It isn't honor. Whenever that happens, the word we use is tyranny. So kind of strong words from Judge Griffin in response to all this. And the governor was asked about this uh, on Wednesday, and he pretty much took the uh, same approach as other Republicans, saying we don't have rules right now in place for how we would pursue an impeachment. And he was pointedly asked several times, well, what do you think? Do you think Judge Griffin should be removed? And silence. He'd kind of... I'm not going to comment on that. This is about having an impeachment process and uh, refuse to pointedly uh, criticize uh, Judge Griffin. But as you said, he's uh, well known for being outspoken, uh, certainly always willing to uh, chime in on any topics that he uh, is passionate about. Indeed. Well, finally, rarely is uh, someone's death celebrated, but on Wednesday came word that former evangelist Tony Alamo had died in federal prison. He was serving a 175-year sentence for sexually abusing young girls who he is said to have considered his wives. Among other things, he preached that polygamy was okay. He was also accused of exploiting and abusing followers who lived at his compounds in Arkansas. Former KUAR News and Program Director Ron Breeding interviewed Tony Alamo in 1982. I'll play parts of that interview in just a few minutes. First, though, I wanted to share reaction to the news that Alamo had died. This is attorney David Carter, who represented five women who testified that they were abused by Alamo. He spoke uh, Wednesday with Sabrina McCormick with our partner station KTXK in Texarkana, and uh, offered his reaction to the news. The victims I've spoken with are feeling a new sense of freedom. A couple of them weren't even sure this day would come. Uh, They were raised to believe that Tony Alamo was a prophet and that he actually spoke for God. Uh, In some cases, their own parents handed them over to Alamo rather than face eternal damnation for disobeying the prophet. Um, In the end, he was nothing more than a narcissistic pedophile 
who wrapped his sadistic abuse in the cloak of religion, and nothing is more despicable than that. Well, I guess speak about that case. Is I mean, in your legal practice, is that a case that you ever thought you would you would be representing people for? It was big big news. Yeah, you know, it's a once in a lifetime case. Um, we were very uncertain when we took it on as to whether we could ever fashion any civil relief for these victims. Uh, But they were very courageous. Uh, Every one of them faced him down in court, both in the sentencing process, in the criminal case, and then in their testimony in the civil case. And uh, we were, in fact, able to secure uh, some historic judgments and uh, put them in a position to uh, at least economically better deal with the damage that he caused. Now, he was convicted of violating the Mann Act, which is, in essence, taking young girls across state lines for sexual purposes. And do you remember the ages of each of those victims at the time that happened? They they ranged. Um, all of the victims uh, that he was criminally charged with were under 18 when he took them as spiritual wives. Uh, the youngest was uh, eight years old when he when he uh, victimized her. Well, I know this has probably been an interesting day for you. You say you've been called by media from all sure. over. Just- yeah, I was. I was raised not to celebrate the death of another human, but uh, I've got to say that um, in this case, we're probably all better off with him gone. Well, it does give a lot of closure, I'm sure. It does. Uh, it, it, it helps. The, at least those that I've talked with seem to, um, um, as I said, have a, a sense of a, a new freedom and uh, uh his followers uh, have sort of scattered once we were able to seize and sell all the properties and take away their ability to operate as a unit. Then they scattered and certainly left Arkansas and Texas. And the judgment he's referring to there was a $525 million damage award given by a Miller County jury in 2014 to seven members of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. That was the largest personal injury judgment in Arkansas history. And again, that was uh, David Couch talking with Sabrina McCormick of Texarkana's KTXK. We'll have more reaction to Alamo's death in just a bit, but I wanted to play now some of the interview that I mentioned that uh, former KUAR News and Program Director Ron Breeding recorded with Alamo in 1982. At that time, Ron was working for a radio station in Fort Smith near Alamo's ministry in the town of Dyer. I'm Ron Breeding, and today our guest is a man that's been the center of some controversy recently, the evangelist who, with his late wife Susan, founded the Tony and Susan Alamo Foundation as a religious group based in rural Crawford County between Dyer and Alma. Tony Alamo, welcome to our show this morning. Thank you. Uh, I know you don't do interviews with the press very often, and we appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. The interview was conducted at a restaurant run by the ministry called the Alamo Restaurant. By then, he had expanded his apocalyptic ministry into a multi-million dollar operation, which he claimed here in this interview reached more souls than all other churches in the world 
combined. When people are sick uh, and in hospitals and in prisons, we visit them and we give them stuff. Uh, we, um, we will go into uh, the ghettos and if people are, uh, they don't have clothes, we give it to them. If they, uh, but we give them the gospel also and we win their souls. And that's why we win more souls than everybody else. If, with all the millions of dollars that these other works are doing, if they, uh, they, they themselves admittedly tell me that they're not doing even near, not even near, a fraction of what we're doing. So they talk a good religion, and they uh, get a lot of money, but they're not doing the works of Christ. The works of Christ is what we're doing. Okay. Your group has been called a cult by some people, and uh, I know you disagree with that assessment of the of the group, but I have two questions. First of all, what would you consider a cult? What type of group would be a cult? And secondly, how does the foundation differ from uh, the other so-called cults, such as Jim Jones Group in Guyana or the Unification Church of Sun Young Moon or some, something like that? Okay, we're the closest to the uh, Book of Acts Church that is here that uh, on earth. Uh, we're the real body of Christ. Uh, Sun Young Moon is a cult. Uh, he is a um, he says he's Christ. We know that the Bible says that when Jesus comes, every eye will see him and he'll come in the clouds. Uh, as far as the Jim Jones, that was a communist group. Uh, they were so far from Christianity, they were just the opposite of it. Uh, a cult is somebody that drives for a lot of money and they don't do the works of the Lord. If we're winning more souls, the Bible says he that wins souls is wise. So he that wins most souls must be the most wise. Uh, a cult is a person or a, a church that would uh, tell people to do something that the Bible tells you not to do. The, uh, so we're doing exactly what the Bible says. So we couldn't be a cult. Everything that is in the Bible we believe 100%. We're the furthest thing from a cult in the world. Um, the world's biggest cult is the Catholic Church. Uh, another large cult is the Mormon Church, uh, the apostate church today, the people that are not going out and winning souls. Jesus said that if you don't win souls, that he'll break, he says the person that doesn't win souls, a branch from off the vine that doesn't win souls, not only souls, but multitudes of souls, many souls, will be broken off and cast into the fire. So uh, there's no danger of us being broken off and cast into the fire because we're winning more souls than all the other churches probably in the whole world. So how could we be a cult if we're the ones that are really doing the works with the Bible? Anything like a church that tells you not to read your Bible, like the Catholic Church, uh, that is an out-and-out uh, disaster. That interview again was recorded in late 1982, months after the death of Alamo's wife Susan, from breast cancer. For six months, he kept his wife's embalmed body in their mansion and told Ron that she would eventually rise from the dead. I saw a vision of uh, her being torn apart, but I saw her being put back together again, and so I believe that God is going to raise Sue up from the dead. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be able to, uh, I just wouldn't, uh, I don't know what I'd do, but it's a commandment in the Bible in the 10th chapter of Matthew raise the dead and I believe uh, I believe that that uh, can be done God called Abraham his friend and God called Abraham the father of faith because he believed that God could raise the dead so if 
Abraham was God's friend. Whose friend is anyone's that says that God can't raise a person from the dead? Do you believe that she will be raised from the dead soon uh, because of your work? Or? Uh, I believe that she will be raised soon. I don't have any uh, message from the Lord on exactly when she's going to be raised from the dead. But I do know one thing, the key uh, for an endorsement such as that from the Lord is to serve him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your body. And uh, I'm just working harder and stronger and more uh, diligent than I ever have before in my life. And uh, I believe that I'll be hitting a million souls a day. That's how uh, vigilant I am going to be in uh, doing this. I know that every time that a soul is won to the Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood that he shed on the cross for us, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. And uh, I know that the Lord is very happy with people that win souls by the foolishness of preaching the gospel. Eventually, he was persuaded to entomb her body in a mausoleum on the property. Finally, here's one more segment from the interview with Tony Alamo on his uh, apocalyptic vision of the world. We see a total annihilation of... uh, they, you extract God out of people and they turn into animals and you see that in the news. There's so much crime and degeneracy going on that it isn't even news anymore. In your major cities they don't print half the murders that are going on every, every single night or the degeneracy that's going on. You can see porn, pornography parlors lining the streets. Uh, it's a shame uh, to even, you can't even walk down the streets nowadays in a city without uh, the lewdness and the filth. The place is like unto Sodom and Gomorrah, like unto the earth was just before uh, God flooded the earth in Noah's time and before he barbecued Sodom and Gomorrah. He said that the world would be in this shape just as it is now before he comes back to earth and burns the earth. And he's going to do it. Several times you've mentioned that we are in the last days. What do you see happening over the next (coughs) five, ten years? in this world we live in? I don't know that the world will go 10 years. Uh, I think it's going to get, just like Jesus said, worse and worse. Things shall wor- wax worse and worse. Now, I'm Jewish. Yeah, my real name is Bernie Lazar Hoffman, and God said just before Jesus comes back to earth again that the Jews would be preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He said that their armies of the world would encompass around and about Israel, but they would never destroy Israel. He said that he would destroy all the nations that will rise up against Israel. And now the United States uh, is backing uh, communist countries that are attacking Israel. And the United States has to fall because of that. God said, I'll bless them that bless the Jew, and I'll curse them that curse the Jew. This country is going to fall. And, and it already has, in uh, interior-wise, the communists don't want to drop a bomb on this country. They want to take it over just as it is. They've uh, demoralized uh, the minds of our youth. They're teaching sex education in schools. They're teaching uh, homosexuality. They're teaching uh, evolution. This country is done, and our people that are sending their children to school are paying for their own children to be de-godded. Okay, thank you for talking with us this morning. Our guest has been Tony Alamo, the founder of the Alamo Foundation based near Dyer, Arkansas. And again, that's Tony Alamo, from a 1982 interview with Ron Breeding, who years later would work here at KUAR. In the 1990s, Tony Alamo would be convicted of tax evasion and serve prison time. After getting out, he moved his ministry to Falk 
in southwest Arkansas near Texarkana. And that's where widespread abuse was alleged. Eventually, the compound was raided by the FBI. Alamo was convicted, and again, he died on Tuesday at a federal prison, one in North Carolina. He was 82. Sabrina McCormick with Texarkana's KTXK spoke with Terry Purvis, who is the mayor of Falk. Terry, I know we've had a few days to sort of process the whole um, news about Alamo's death. What What is the feeling for you right now? I'm happy. Um, I know usually when somebody dies, it's human instinct for one to grieve. But we got a sense of relief. We now got a sense of finality. It's over. It's done. It's gone. I mean, it. this is it. Uh, I know from talking to some of the ex-members, two of them said, let the healing begin. So it, it's kind of sad when you celebrate a person's death, but with all of the destruction he is on many lives, it's back, clear back in the 60s when they first started out in California, all the way to their ending here in Falk that uh, it's it's a relief that this gentleman's not on the face of this earth anymore and will never hurt nobody again. You know, I remember we talked about, you know, just the way the town sort of, I mean, it, it really did put Falk sort of in the spotlight, but it wasn't necessarily the spotlight that you wanted. Well, you know, I, a CNN reporter asked me, doesn't this shine a black eye on your community? And I think just the opposite. This guy has been going on since 1960, and nobody could ever stop him until he came to Falk, Arkansas. This community rallied around to bring it to an end. I'm, I'm pretty proud of our community. Do you have anybody there? What's the overall feeling right now? Everybody is pretty much feeling the same way I do. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's good. We're glad. Uh, is there anybody there who... Are there still victims that live there, or do have they pretty much no. gone? Okay. They, they've, they've all moved off. Do you know how big the church had gotten at, at any point or one point? In 2007, when I took office, we estimated about 425 people living up here on the compound. And, and during the trial, what are your recollections of that, and how how do you feel about all of it and how it came about? Well... From listening to some of the testimonies, some of the victims, it's it's still to this day mind-boggling that anything like that could have happened anywhere. Not, I mean, let alone Falk, Arkansas. It it just it's still to this day it's just mind-boggling what what all transpired in that place. Do you remember his, the way his demeanor during the trial? Very very smug. Yeah. Very. I mean, he was. It, it, it's like you can't touch me. I think at one point I felt like he really didn't believe he did anything wrong. It looked as if he was... You an- know, I, I, the old saying, if, if you lie enough, you believe the lie. Um, it, the, the, and I'm not going to call it preaching, because that was... 
me, that was just a storefront for the RICO Act. This guy was nothing less than the mafia, what he was running down there. His teachings, let's call it, was so far out there. But, it, I mean, it, it almost came in line with the same thing that David Caress and Jim Jones and all them were preaching. Uh, in fact, one time in one of his sermons that's on the Internet, he likened himself to David Koresh, and he said he felt like he was a, a he was a brother to him. But, I mean, it's just so much lies and deceit and dissension. Uh, he may have got to the point where he felt like he was uh, telling the truth. That's Terry Purvis, the mayor of Falk, Arkansas. And with that, we'll wrap up KUAR's Week in Review podcast. I'm Michael Hiplin. Thanks to Sabrina McCormick from KTXK in Texarkana, Jonathan Reeves from KASU in Jonesboro, and KUAR's own Chris Hickey, who joined me earlier. KUAR is a listener-supported, editorially independent service of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Thanks for listening.